There's been some weird metaphysics and philosophical distinctions being made in the public sphere about what it means to be racist. Racism doesn't exist apart from enactments of racism. What up, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to do a topical episode of sorts. Would you say that's accurate, Troy? Yeah, especially in comparison to what we've been doing the last uh, several dozen episodes. Yeah, it's been heavy. We did some heavy shit going through texts and with other interviews and um, and things like that. So this will be good. It's uh, it's going to be kind of remember our old our old bullshit segment. This is kind of a bullshit episode in a way. Kinda. Yeah, yeah. I had I have a we have a mutual friend who once told me uh, maybe halfway through our tenure that uh, she listens to the podcast to replace listening to like. Uh, bullshit centrist media news and i thought well that's a horrible oh. decision um <laughs> <laughs> but then also you know that's not a thing we could qualify as even poorly doing anymore it's categorically not doing so we, it's fun to kind of jump back into it and um, talk about what's happening topically for a minute yeah i agree man that sounds good so yeah so we're going to talk about uh i guess the issue of racism race racism what is it when you call somebody a racist? How can we flesh out these terms? And of course, this is, I guess, inspired by a lot of the online and media fur over the president's recent tweets and comments about the squad, as they're being called. So we'll, we'll delve into that when we get to our, uh, our main segment. Yeah, yeah. And also, if you want to support what we're doing here, you can visit patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There we have several tiers of support you can contribute towards and get goodies like the monthly newsletter where we have extra shitty minutes and sticky leaves. You can get access to bonus episodes, which we do every once in a while. And I promise we'll get back to as soon as some crazy shit in our lives uh, slows down a little bit right now. Um, and uh, other stuff that we put out, including the democracy motherfuckers tier, which allows you to um, contribute towards picking a patron-sponsored episode, which we'll be doing fairly soon, right, Austin? Yes, very soon, actually. Matter of fact, I will probably put up something to field suggestions now. So when this episode is released and you are a patron, uh, run over to your email or however you get your notifications and make sure that you see that we are fielding suggestions for an episode topic. And if you're not a patron and you want to be able to field uh, topic suggestions... Become a patron, and then you can start throwing stuff at us. Speaking of fielding suggestions, dude, our 100th yeah. episode is coming up soon. Oh, shit. Yeah, so we decided we want to uh, do something revolving around a more fun, uh, extemporaneous um, type conversation. So we want to solicit from you all uh, different questions that we can answer or things we can talk about that are of the more fun, lighthearted variety. They can be philosophical, but they're not too philosophical. Not the kind of fair we usually deal with, but something a little bit more lighthearted and fun. The best um, suggestions and entries and questions 
that you can email to us or leave on comments on the episodes or tweet to us. We'll pick those and we'll do those all for 100th episode, which should be in about a month or so. Yes, I think that's about right. Sweet, man. I'm looking forward to that. We yeah. can metaphorically pop a bottle and, uh, and celebrate oh, our that accomplishments. That ain't no metaphor, yeah. <laughs> that's right. All right, man. Well, let's get into the main beef of our episode this week. Got to start off with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about whatever it is that's been chapping our hide, pissing us off, grinding our gears. What it was? There were some other ones that we used to have that we've kind of let rust a little bit. Something about our gooch. <laughs> I don't remember. Goad our gooch. That sounds like like it's you, dude. Goading our gooch. What's been goading your gooch this week, Troy? Well, nothing's been goading my gooch since I don't know what the verb or noun in that phrase refers to. But um. So my, my shitty minute this week, um, I promise Austin, this is not passive aggressively directed towards you because is I twice, is this twice in three weeks that you have called me out in public? No, was, I'm, up, I'm man? specifically saying that I'm not doing that because <laughs> okay. I am as, as guilty of this as probably you are and probably anybody who works in professional philosophy is. All right. Um, and I recently heard this from a, an unnamed source, which I won't talk about. Um, but it's a common thing that philosophers say that bugs me. And I want to just opine on it a little bit and get your take on it, because I think you might have an interesting uh, bit to say mm. about it. So philosophers oftentimes, when they refer to a new idea or a new source of ideas that they're able to bring into their uh, more uh, typical work, they'll refer to it as being interesting. Mm-hmm. as a replacement for good or true or something like that. Interesting or useful or some other term like that in a way that a medieval philosopher or an ancient philosopher would talk about truth or goodness, right? These kind of objective absolutes. Mm. Um, mm. And it often comes, I, I think, from probably more so from continental philosophers than analytic, but I think analytic philosophers do it too. And it seems to be this sort of need to avoid terms like true and good, since the connotations there are seem are seemingly um, straightjacketed by the objectivity you're supposed to have when you have truth or goodness, and the sort of disfavor that those terms have fallen into. And so philosophers use the word interesting. And it seems to me like every time they, they say that, oh, this new idea, I think that it actually gives me some new interesting things to do with it. Or mm. if I combine these two <laughs> ideas, then I'm going to get some interesting results. And that's why I'm doing what sort of explaining why they think what they're doing is worthwhile or because it's interesting. Right. And it seems to me like it's all reactionary. It's just, I want to say true or good, but I, but I can't say that because then I'm going to get bad looks from people or, or whatever. People who are reading this are going to be like, oh, this person's like believes in absolute truth or some bullshit like that. Who do they think they are, Plato? And then just mm-hmm. you know, dismiss whatever I have to say. But they really mean that. That's really what they're getting at. And I'm, I'm guilty of this because I, I do the same thing. It's sort of a, I think you're trained to do, um, you know, informally in philosophy mm. to celebrate what's interesting above what's good or true. Right? The interesting thing is like the ultimate holy grail that you're trying to look for. The most interesting thing that there is. And it seems to me like I want to not necessarily fight back for truth and goodness. I don't really care about terminology, but just admitting that I want philosophers to admit that they have a normative vision 
Like they have a normative vision for what will be good, what will be good philosophy, what will be what they want to do in philosophy. And I think a lot of philosophers, especially in continental tradition, are kind of afraid of that, kind of afraid to admit that they actually have a normative vision. Look, if you want to combine like some Africana philosophy with some, um, you know, contemporary issue that's dealt with in American continental philosophy because you think it's interesting. No, just admit that like you think this is going to have good results, normatively good results that you think are good for analyzing, um, you know, social theory or whatever. Like just just admit it. You have a normative vision. It's not just you're not just following the goddess of interestingness, right? No, you're following like what you think is good. So just say it because I think that. So and you think that. Let's just all you know admit it here and get over the niceties and stop flirting about inter- interestingness. It's like a. You know, Kierkegaard's three stages of subjectivity, aesthetic, ethical, religious. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in that aesthetic stage. Like you just pretend like, oh, I just play with ideas. I'm just having like some fun here. And it's like, no, bro. Like you're bigger than that. Like you care about things. There's some like guiding principles that you live according to, whether that's in the ethical sphere, the religious sphere, whatever, that's a different issue. But like, don't pretend that you're just like playing around with ideas, being a romantic, and then you're going to go home and like just forget about it. And it's not even all that important in the end. It's important to you. That's why you're doing it. So just kind of cop to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel very seen here. (laughs) No, no. honestly, though, I honestly wouldn't have done this if I didn't think I was as guilty of of this as I think almost any philosopher who's dealt in any way with continental philosophy has experienced. It's interesting that you note that bit about... Don't say that it's interesting, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It's frustrating that you note that <laughs> bit about um, how how it's almost like we are uh, kind of capitulating to these external pressures. And I wonder if we could even take that one step further and say we internalize it. And then we sort of have like an allegiance or a fealty to ourselves, right? Like at least that's how I think I – like it, it becomes neurotic because I think for me a lot of times it's like – in order for me to be living up to this standard that I have erected in my own imaginary, then I have to make sure that I'm checking my open-endedness and ensuring that I'm not foreclosing myself from potency or potentia, right? And, and that if I, if I engage in the normative too much, uh, at least too forcefully, then I will somehow immediately preclude myself from that openness. And so it's kind of like self-policing, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. And it is an external pressure, but it's an external pressure that's been totally just appropriated and inculcated into my own ideological makeup, maybe. Yeah, I like that you say that it's neurotic, because I, th- I think that exactly captures um, the idea. There's nothing wrong with liking things that are interesting or pursuing things that are interesting, Right. Because that's just like a natural human capacity, right? We get interested in things and they sort of um, are fanciful and we pursue them purely on that basis. And that's totally fine, right? You don't have to like every moment of your life, every moment of your like uh, life of the mind, pursue the, the ultimate good, right? Like the form of the good mm-hmm. for every moment. That's ridiculous, right? No human being can do that or should do that. Like makes you a screwed up person probably. Um, but... I think in our like in our even in our most important work, there's an important step where you step back from the interesting thing and say, well, how does this fit into the larger 
goal of what I'm trying to do with thought, right? And it's, and it has to kind of fit in that project, that longer term project. Otherwise, mm. you're not going to have any desire to continue pursuing it. Interesting only lasts for so long. It's ephemeral, right? Um, so you don't have to do it every moment, but there's it's healthy, I think, to kind of step back and say, yeah, like this is more than just interesting to me. Maybe it started out that way, but this actually means something to the larger project um, that I'm working on or to um, some greater good that I'm pursuing in my work or even in um, my like actual practical political life. So uh, yeah, getting away from that neurosis of just feeling like you have to police yourself from pursuing what's good. It's like a, uh, it's kind of like a, um, a red scare type thing, right? Like, mm. Oh no, no, we can't, we can't follow the ideologues. Right. Cause then you just fall into like, um, some trance where you're just, uh, do what the, the higher ups tell you or something. And that's just for the most part, just not, not true, especially in like thought. Right. Mm. There's, I don't know if this is entirely true, but it almost seems that there's kind of a consumerist logic here that that our feigning at this uh, open-endedness that like, I just don't like labels, bro, uh, kind, <laughs> of, kind of fluidity, that it, that it keeps us beholden to the process of always... Um, always seeking satisfaction, but always pushing the goalpost further and further, right? So it's, you know, in psychoanalytic terms, the the kind of the, the tension that comes from the object cause of desire and that the real object of satisfaction is always being pressed further and further away as the goalpost is receding from our, our grasp, right? But I wonder if there's something similar here, and that, that would be that kind of like neurotic tendency. But I wonder if there's something similar here, and I wonder if it it is intensified in an age of like hypermodern consumerism where where we are constantly just consuming everything i mean we do this with dating right there's always the next person to swipe on or the next person in the bar to meet or the next person to check out when you're outside that we do this with our movie consumption there's a new netflix show to see a new series to binge watch or whatever um but we don't really ever get to like stop and and bathe in the experiences as much because we're constantly being induced into that further neurotic process. And so I, w I don't want to say that one is causal and the other is an effect, but it does seem that there's an interesting kind of cross resonance here. And I wonder if it's intensifying maybe both tendencies that are kind of consumerist tendencies, uh, intensifying our um, intellectual tendencies and vice versa. Yeah, I think it definitely is. And you even see it you know, cross-pollinate with the political realm, right? Who are the figures in the Democratic primary who are the, I don't like labels, bro? Beto. Yeah, exactly. And he's a <laughs> poster child for, I, I don't like labels, I just like practicality. And that's kind of the, the place <laughs> of the interesting thing, right? Whenever someone, yeah. whenever a politician says, I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods about some crazy ideals that are never going to actually uh, be able to be fleshed out, I'm going to do things that are practical, right? I'm going to get things yeah. done. And it's like, well, what things are you talking about? Well, we, we can't talk about that. Just things, right? It, it's a, yeah. formally, it's a similar um, kind of move where we can't talk about um, the big stuff because there be dragons. Um, we just right. need to sort of follow the thing right in front of our nose. And that's really just a defense of the status quo when it comes down to it. Now we're drifting off a little bit from the philosophical issue there. But I think formally there's some, there's some resonance. 
Okay, now if I can defend myself at the same time, it also depends on how you understand your metaphysical priors, right? So if you are a little bit more interested in like a metaphysics of difference, then it sort of grounds this pragmatic, open-ended process or like process philosophy even, right? Like in the Whiteheadian tradition, I think similarly gives you a little bit of leeway, um, which might then create bad habits because you think that you don't have any normative framework. Um, the issue is balancing like a philosophy of difference or a process philosophy with those kind of static normative frames. And that doesn't mean that they're static in a once and for all time essence that you that is like an unshakable foundation, but that there is a dialectical tension or a processual tension between um, those normative frameworks and the processes that are constantly disrupting those normative frameworks. But then that after they get disrupted, they get sort of like reformulated, but in a new guise, right? And so for me, um, I do think that there is something kind of substantial also about having that open-endedness. The only question is, is and I'm, I'm just thinking about this now, is you kind of have made me think, oh yeah, so that's then my symptom, right? That's like my neurotic symptom is that I'm like policing myself to make sure I'm being faithful to like my ontology, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, that's at least like, a police by a by a like a governed order at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> well, my goal, I think this is my goal in life. I'm gonna do a lot of like pragmatic, practical shit now, and then once I get into like my 50s and 60s, I'm only gonna do metaphysics, like just straight metaphysics. And at that point, then I'm just gonna be like, hey guys, I was kind of bullshitting for the first like 20, 30 years of my career, and now this is this is all of my assumptions. Yeah, it was kind of like hovering around there, but now I'm just gonna deal with it explicitly. You know? I, don't, I don't know, dude. I saw the picture of you with that face app being 50 or 60, <laughs> and you're definitely yeah. not going to be in philosophy anymore. You're going to be leading the emerging church group at the local brew house, like I told you. I'll be honest, dude. When you sent me that tweet, <laughs> it kind of resonated with a part of my soul that still exists. I would love to be some sort of like alternative postmodern pastor at some point <laughs> in the future. I'm not even shitting. I'm already ordained. There's going to so be two years it, where you probably just go off and do that as it's like a <laughs> Oh, God. Well, hit me up, people, on Twitter if you want to join my house church community. We're going to talk about uh, homebrew, and we're going to smoke cigars, and we're going to play poker while talking about, you know, just the real stuff, man. It's about just meeting people where they're at, bro, and creating community and shit like that. You, you officiated so. your sister's wedding, right? That's how you got ordained? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that your family knew what they were doing when they allowed you to do that. It's just going to set off this causal process. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they set that little seed in your brain, and 25 years from now, it's going to sprout. Uh, I'm going to have my little church in like a mountain community uh, in Mammoth, where we're just going to fucking snowboard in the winter, <laughs> fly fish and hike and read poetry in the summer, and then yeah, we're just so going to do for, praxis. So much for ministering to the least of these. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> get a little... There's a very strong Latino community in that area that that needs uh, that needs to be reached out to. You know, we're gonna be a shelter for the immigrant populations in California. Yeah, you so. ain't no John Piper dude. <laughs> <laughs>All right, so should we move on to our main segment now? Yeah, let's get into this. Yeah, so we were talking about what to do this week. We wanted to do something a little bit more topical. Um, a little more free-flowing uh, and less intense than some of our past uh, several episodes. So 
Given what's going on in the news right now, we decided to talk a little bit about racism. So Austin, do you want to maybe set the stage a little bit for um, what's been happening in the public sphere that's kind of goaded us into uh, talking about racism? Yeah, so I don't remember what the initial tweet was that sent that set things off because there have been like a few different things. But basically, Donald Trump said something along the lines of, uh, you know, there are these politicians that are in government and he's referring to these four minority women in particular who have been critical of our country. And he kind of went off on one talking about how they don't like our country. They can't stand our country, yada, 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 whatever that means. We can talk about that. And then uh, if they don't like it, then they can go back to where they came from, right? And this sent off uh, just alarm bells everywhere because that is a very common trope, racist trope that people issue against minority and immigrant communities, right? Like, well, if you don't like it, then go back to where you came from. Or you see those viral videos of people in Walmart that are fighting and someone's speaking Spanish and they're like, there's America, we speak English here. If you don't like it, then go back to where you came from kind of shit. It's a popular KKK motto. Well, absolutely. Yeah. You know what's weird, man? When I read this, I was like, that's totally fucking Stephen Miller. Like, I just had a feeling that Trump was just echoing words that Stephen Miller has told him in a meeting at some point, you know? Not that Trump doesn't have his own thoughts at all, and I don't want to completely absolve the guy from being a bastard, but it just reeked so much of that little worm's language, you know? You heard that guy talk? Yeah, you know, and I don't think it's important. Some people have tried to downplay this fact because it can lead to some unfortunate uh, like conclusions or assumptions, but um, the fact that it's that that phrase was used against um, Congress women who 75% of which were born in America. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important, not because people who aren't born in America don't deserve some, you know, same degree of respect. Absolutely. They do. Right. We should you know, foreground that. But when you tell someone to go back where they came from, knowing full well that they were born in America and are American citizens, um, that means you're specifically focusing on their race and not on their, say, uh, nation of origin, right? Mm. Uh, it's it specifically has the uh, background assumption of white people belong here and other people do not. That's right, um, and so that's what's yeah. what's telling, and I think it's important to point that out because that's really what makes it racist. I think, right? I mean, mm. you could, as much as it would be mean and kind of you know the work of a bastard to tell someone to go back where they came from, if they literally came from somewhere else, you could probably excuse it as not being racist. Like, it, there's a possibility it's not racist at that point, even though it probably is, given, you know, your priors that, that you're Yeah, it could this. be, like, ethnicist. <laughs> yeah, or, or even just, you know... Nationalist or uh, something. Like a no girls allowed kind of thing on the playground. Yeah. Just go back where you're That's supposed true. to, where, you're, where you came from, you know? You're like, you don't belong here. You weren't from here, literally. Right. Um... But it's different. It's even worse um, when the person actually literally is from here and has every single uh, legal right that you have. Um, it means you're sort of even throwing away the idea of the legal protections um, that are at least supposed to be uh, enhancing fairness and justice. Whether or not they do is a different question. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to point that out as well. Yeah, it's basically saying you're not one of us, right? And so then the question is, is how are they excluded from this category of the in-group, in what way is that? And it was really telling, I thought. It was really interesting. Oh, fuck. I can't say interesting anymore, can I? It was really <laughs> shitty when I'm going to start making like 
more definitive statements now. Uh, <laughs> it was fucked up when uh, it was just wrong when Kellyanne Conway came out in a in a news conference and someone was pinning her on this, and her defense was. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it was very clear what he meant. He was talking about, you know, their their heritage. She's like, I'm of Irish and Scottish descent. So, you know, we're all from... And it's like, come on, bitch. You know that that is not what he is getting at. No one ever looks at a white person as like, you know what? Go back to Scandinavia. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you don't Go back to the dramatic here. provinces from whence you came. That's right. I know you're from Minnesota now, but go back to those... <laughs> homelands like no one ever uses that because it's just simply understood that this is an epithet that is directed at people who are not white right and and to be clear that doesn't just simply mean like skin color but that you aren't part of the in-group that has been deemed uh pure as a part of the authentic american experience whiteness you don't have that category you don't have that bestowed upon you you are not one of us is what's being said when that when that kind of uh when that is directed at somebody so yeah so it was really interesting it set off a huge firestorm obviously as well as it should have from pretty much everybody i mean uh center right center left uh not far right obviously they we can talk about this in a minute they actually doubled down on it and at a rally where trump was at they started chanting send her back send her back referring to uh is it ilhan or ilyan or il ilan omar i thought i never heard but Ilan? Yeah. I never know how to appropriately pronounce her first name, but who is of uh, Somali background, but she is an American citizen. And But they were chanting, send her back, send her back. So they were doubling down on these comments that the president made. Uh, but, you know, center right, center left have all come out pretty strongly and denounced the president uh, for those statements. And that kind of fits into what you were just saying a minute ago. It's, it's kind of a, a violation of the perceived universality of the liberal rights that America likes to at least tell itself uh, that it's founded upon, right? This idea that you are equal before the law and everyone here has an equal claim to citizenship or uh, and therefore because of that an equal claim to the rights that are bestowed upon them uh, by being a part of that group. And this then seems to clearly contest that or to contradict that. And so pretty much everybody across the board, and then of course people more on the extreme left, the radical left, the revolutionary left, um, identitarian left. Of course, they are, they're not having any of this shit. So it was, um, it was pretty interesting to see, uh, an issue that singularly united. You don't get that too often in today's political climate, right? Like usually it's Republicans are humming and hawing and they're not being so willing to come out and critique the president. But this one kind of united pretty much everyone from center-right onward that this was wrong. Now, the way that they interpreted the criticism is obviously going to be different, but at least it was kind of interesting to see to see some sort of like voice of unison. And it clearly demarcated, I would say, more uh, the, the kind of like emerging far-right tendencies from uh, everybody else, which I thought was kind of an interesting dichotomy or, or bifurcation or tear, let's say, and in the public sphere that obviously people know about if they pay attention to these things, but it was just really thrust, I thought, into, at least from my perspective, into like the media and sociopolitical limelight. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it Fuck. did. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was something worth considering because it's a valuable contribution to how we understand the political landscape in America. Is that normative enough for you? God damn it. <laughs> I don't think everything has to be normative, dude. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's important to say that while the responses have certainly had this sort of 
uh, minor dissent from center-right figures. I'm pretty sure that Trump's approval rating has actually gone up a little bit, uh, even crazy. with Republicans yeah. since then. So it's definitely not going to actually cause any any sort of actual dissent amongst Republicans. No. Um, it's really just the the classic um, uh, unconcerned uh, face that that's happened throughout the entirety of his um, campaign and then his presidency. So it really means nothing other than that some people are going to publicly be concerned about it rather than just lining up to defend it. Um, absolutely. And even in, yeah, it's, you know, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to move on. Well, if you're moving on to another thing, I was just going to say, it's really funny to see how the, the, um, the mainstream media has been covering this. The, the, the kind of like liberal MSNBC crowd and CNN crowd are kind of, you know, they're just champing at the bit for fucking anything to disqualify or delegitimate Trump. But the problem is, is he's already delegitimated in their, from their perspective, right? He's perpetually being relegitimated by his supporters, but he's constantly being delegitimated by these pundits and the, the commentariat that are constantly trying to take him down. Um, but this isn't going to do anything. Like, they're kind of just waiting for the thing that's going to disqualify him for what, I wonder? Impeachment? Like, do you really think that he's, at this point, do you really think that that's going to get him impeached? Or are they hoping that this is the thing that's going to knock him off of his momentum going into the next election? I'm not sure that it is, because if he can strategically employ a similar strategy to 2016 and actually even galvanize more support, and the Democratic Party doesn't get their shit together and chooses some lukewarm, milk toast candidate that isn't going to fire people up to get them to, to support him or her, then I'm not sure that this actually does anything other than um, stoke the flames of outrage in your own heart, which seems to be a very sort of like masturbatory disposition that is already self-defeating. It's like they're setting themselves up for self-sabotage in a way. You know? Oh, 100%. That's exactly what's happening. Um, I mean, it's that classic tweet. I don't remember who it is that said it, but it's the, it's been X days since surely we got him this time concerning right. Trump, right? Like they're going to, he's going to do something that's finally going to get him. Or what did Nancy Pelosi say? We don't need to hip, impeach him. He self impeaches every day. Um, whatever. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Motherfuckers. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a classic idea that if, if, we just focus the attention on all the horrible things that he does and says, eventually people will be reasonable and listen. And that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of why people like him in the first place. His, his approval rating actually went up slightly since then. This is, this is what some people in the country like about him, um, that he'll just say the things that they actually believe and that prior to a few years ago, you really couldn't say in public. Uh, if you did, you'd be called out on it and you'd probably wuss out and apologize. And the internet era has taught us that the best response to controversy and to being um, accused or um, being told that you have to apologize and sort of be canceled is to just double down. Double down and um, don't apologize and just keep going. And eventually you'll be out of the news cycle, onto the next thing, and you'll be fine. And I know Trump came out and said he doesn't agree with the chance. Um, but I think we all know that that doesn't mean anything. Um, and that certainly he's not going to like publicly rebuke. Um, his supporters who do stuff like that, especially next time it happens at a rally. He's not going to like stop them or anything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because it's really easy for somebody who is maybe participating in 
either the logic of those chants or that was actually live and echoing those chants themselves, for them to just be like, oh, well, you know, he's got to do his spin in the, the media, but he still supports us and our recognition that, uh, that what we're doing is just and that our words are true sort of shit, right? There's always a way to self-justify from within your silo. So even if he comes out and is like, yeah, I don't really agree with the chance, like that's very different than coming out and denouncing it and saying, no, these people are American citizens, whatever. And of course he can't say that because that would literally just contradict his entire position on this issue. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so anything he says is just going to be a sort of like mealy-mouthed kind of... Uh, kind of bullshit sentiment that he's just offering to i don't know do some some spin yeah so given that context there's a number of questions i think we could go on to hear that'd be interesting um, to talk about um especially like you know prognostications about what this means i'm particularly interested in thinking about um uh, what this what the response is about all the hemming and hawing about oh this is the the harbinger of the rule the end of the rule of law right and that same stuff that that all, all the same think pieces that came out when the uh, lock her up chance happened during the campaign, right? Oh, this yeah. is the end of the rule of law, end of liberalism, yada yada. That's all interesting, but I think um, that's all been kind of talked about to death. I think a little bit. Um, what I kind of wanted to talk about, and what we talked about previously before the episode um, about going over here, was the idea about what it means to be racist. Mm. Um, there's been some weird kind of metaphysics and philosophical distinctions being made in the public sphere um, very poorly, of course, about what mm. it means to be racist and whether um, words are racist or people are racist or structures are racist. Are we allowed to say things like that? Um, how do we dis- uh, differentiate and then relate all those different uh, phenomenons or, or instantiations of racism? And I think probably the most popular example of this in the public sphere of the last week has been I believe it was Nancy Pelosi, right, who said that um, Trump's words were racist, but not, that does not necessarily mean that the president is racist. Mm-hmm. That was basically what was what was said, right? Mm. Interesting. What do you think about? Yeah. That? So here's well, I the saw, thing. Really quick, I saw a great response somewhere. Okay. that was someone saying, "If just the words are racist, that means that the dictionary is racist because it has racist words in it too." <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting because is she basically saying that that the words are racist in their enactment, but that there's no essence? Is that kind of what in her in her weak understand in her weak metaphysical position? Is that kind of what she's uh, offering? Right, a kind of only process. There are no principles or a de-essentialized like kind of existential process of becoming kind of theory that, oh, we, I don't think she is obviously, um, which would be something that's probably more in line with how I would want to address this. But it is interesting that she's kind of providing cover because um, to preserve the kind of uh, the power of the center in a way, like, you know, it's much easier to just kind of like provide some sort of light critique while also providing cover at the same time than it is to really fully go in deep. But I wonder what it is that she's actually trying to say. Does that then mean that – so it's it's the things that you do but that there are no essences. Is that kind of what 
what was piquing your interest with that statement? Well, I kind of thought that the assumption was just this basic idea that um, intentions uh, of the actor or speaker are hidden behind a, a wall and you can't really know them. There's this epistemic gap between um, what I can know and your intentions. Uh, maybe even between what you can know and your intentions. We're going to get real you know, deep and philosophical about it. Um, mm. And that, therefore, we can say for sure that the tropes being used here or being employed here are racist, right? The, um, if you don't like it, you can go back home, go back where you came from. That's clearly a racist trope. But that doesn't mean that the person using it is intending it to be racist or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that seemed to me what I think she was getting at, just to kind of leave some wiggle room to say, well, I'm not saying that I know the person's intentions. I'm just saying that the words are clearly racist, which is a weaker position and so more dif- more difficult to sort of disprove or defeat, right? Yeah. I think one of the difficulties here is that it's very difficult for us just as human thinkers to really work through how it is that we understand how people are inconsistent or how people change or how people surprise us or how people do things that that don't seem to fit within uh, the identity that we kind of attach them to or that they attach themselves to. And so when we say that somebody is racist or somebody is not racist, we're making a very sort of definitive statement about that person's being or about that person's character. And I think that's where kind of part of the problem comes in is we are so accustomed to thinking through the language of being, you know, is, are, you know, uh, whatever else, (laughs) aren't, um, isn't, um, but the negation of them. But uh, it's very interesting that, that that is how I think, especially in English, we tend to think about things, right? Everything, for the most part, when we're talking about um, attributes to a person are attached to the language of being. Like, I am hungry, I am cold, you know, it, it is nice outside. Whereas in a lot of other languages, you don't get that. It's, I have hunger, you know, um, there, uh, there is cold or I have cold or something along those lines. It can be more of like a possessive thing. And I wonder if that actually kind of, and I'm not saying that this tendency doesn't occur in other languages as well, but I wonder if it's kind of almost heightened in English because we're constantly thinking about things in relation to like essences or beings. And if that doesn't kind of condition us to think about this problem uh, or to think about any kind of attributes in a, in a way that is that tends to be a little bit more fixed and essentialized and so there's that tension that we're constantly like working through between that like essence of what a thing is or uh, how a person is versus that other tendency to recognize that material processes and that human experience is inconsistent and in flux. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's predication, right? Yeah. Predication is basically, you know, we would say I am hungry, right? I'm predicating hunger uh, as a property of, of myself, right? Um, as an object or a subject of that hunger. Whereas a language that says I have hunger, um, it's still a predicate, right? But it's, it has a different connotation. The connotation being something like, this is a transient phase, um, which is not essential to my being. Um, where I, I am hungry doesn't actually have the connotation of essentializing it, right? But um, it certainly can give that impression in certain cases if you're not careful. And so are you saying like, what if we said, or what if we said instead of, he's racist, he's being racist, or he's acting racistly, 
or he's speaking yeah. racistly. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder if that wouldn't help us to kind of think through what this phenomenon of racism is and how it is exhibited, maybe in a in a better light. Yeah, I think that distinction is helpful. I also think that there's there's some respect. This is kind of in disfavor now, especially amongst like you know people who work on like sociology and stuff like that, um, or more radical versions of sociology. But there is a sense in which I think people can be racist in the sense in an essentializing sense. By that, I don't think that like means they they literally have a racist bone in their body, which is that horrible trope you know people use. Um, doesn't mean you're essentially racist in the sense that you're just that way and you can't change. But in the sense right. of having a certain character trait, right? We have yeah. character traits and they develop as habits over time. And there's you know various ways you can account for that. But in a real general sense, you can develop racist character traits, which then uh, are expressed in racist actions and speech. And you can sort of know to expect that from someone who has those racist character traits, right? Um, but at the same time, well, I think that's important to to admit and not just give up the essentializing factor completely. My real issue here with this talk about accusations of racism is, while it's certainly possible for a person to be racist in a more essentializing way, um, what real sort of what's the cash value of that? Like, what can you do with that? With saying somebody is racist, um, I think it's really a kind of deflating accusation. I mean, what can you really say if, if you discover that someone's racist, especially if it's not someone that you're like close to or have any real influence upon their character? Like if, if your kid's racist, you can do something about that because you have some control mm. over their environment and their influences and things that develop those habits in them. But if you're not, then it's like you can't really do anything about it. Um, so I think it actually kind of leads to like uh, deflation and inaction more than anything. Mm. Whereas speaking about sort of the broader environments in which the racism sort of uh, gathers sway and actually has influence, that's the kind of thing you might actually be able to do something about or at least support um, policies and programs that do something about that. So I think it is important, just to kind of summarize here, to differentiate between individuals who are racist or who have racist beliefs um, or things like that it's important to point that out and there, you know, for hopefully ways we can help to ameliorate that. The, just focusing on who's racist and who's not and battling over whether or not someone's racist is kind of a, a fool's errand, ultimately, I think. I mean, what are you going to do, like deprogram people? That's kind of the mm -hmm. only option you have if like massive amounts of people in the country are just racist and that's just the way they are. Mm -hmm. Then if, that, if the only way to make the world better is for them not to be racist, then deprogramming is your option. And that is not an option, yeah. ultimately, right? There has to be a different diagnosis of the problem than just individual racist brains exist. Mm. Yeah, I think there are like two different things going on here. One is like ethico-political, and then the other is ontological, right? And ethico-politically, I think you're right that it leads to like uh, a sort of despair and inaction but it's a strange, it's like masked because it's masked in this lip service that is paid to political action, which isn't really political, I don't think, but is, but is really just a kind of like, like mass psychologization where you say those people are X and these people are Y. And so to just simply brand someone as racist is a really easy way oftentimes to just kind of 
delineate the social landscape and to place them within the larger world or the larger field where people are categorized within their manageable bits, right? And so it's it's a way to kind of manage um, the complexes of society. But ontologically, I do think there's something interesting with that sociological point that you brought up about habits. I mean, this is something that I think is extremely integral for us to understand how it is that people are in a process of becoming and at the same time can exhibit characteristics that might not necessarily consistently or habitually define them, whereas simultaneously they might also have things that are habitually defined by those processes. And how is it that a process then turns into a principle? Or how is it that a state of becoming, or let's say a process of becoming, turns into a state of being? And then what is the relationship between those two? And in what way can those states of being, i.e. someone being racist habitually, in what way is that disrupted or can it be disrupted? And that's when you talked about like, what is it, just depro deprogramming? Like, how do you ontologically deprogram somebody's habituated uh, characteristics or character traits, let's say? And so, I don't know, I find this to be really fascinating. And I do think that the best way to kind of approach this is to think of it from that, that, that framework, ontologically speaking at least. And I think then that has bearing on how we understand things politically. Because then, once we realize that Okay, I do think that people are in a state of becoming. Sartre has this amazing quote where he says, you are what you're not and you're not what you are, uh, which basically is is that you are what you're not. You What you are is constantly being disrupted by the flow of becoming. And you're not what you are is the inverse of that, right? And so I think that, that ontologically I kind of – I buy that as maybe a first principle, right? But I think politically then the question is, okay, if we – if we come to things from that perspective, then how does that how does that change or transform how it is that we approach people in the ethico-political sphere? Does that mean that we have a little bit more grace and patience with people? Does that mean that we're more forgiving of people? Does that mean that we do the kind of like liberal, like, well, you know, their words are racist, but they're not racist because, you know, that that essence thing is constantly in a state of disruption? Or does it allow us to actually kind of have a little bit more teeth in our political assessments and then our, our political activities as we coordinate how to manage that that sort of um, dialectical tension between being and becoming. Yeah, you know, I think we're kind of getting to a pretty principled contradiction within liberalism here, right? Because, you know, liberalism says, politically speaking, that uh, a true liberal political organization can't really be structurally or in any way like that racist. Because um, individual incentives give rise to a degree of fairness as like a, you know, epiphenomenon um, such that, you know, the greatest kind of classic example is, you know, the, the shop owner is not going to only sell to white people because then they would lose money. So individual incentive to make the most money will lead them to um, sell to everyone. Right. And so mm -hmm. a true liberal order in that way is not going to have those divisions of racism and xenophobia. Those are all just like uh, barnacles on the side of the ship of liberalism. And now we can sort of shave them off uh, if we do the proper amount of education and um, stuff like that. Um, but the issue is and that what I always found so ridiculous about that example, which is always used in like, you know, um, libertarianism 101, is, well, what would the shop owner do if the majority of their customers were racist? Hmm. If, if their goal, their incentive is to make the most money possible and the majority of the people in their town who are their customers are racist, 
then they're also going to act racistly because that will satisfy the most customers. What if a lot of customers won't come to the shop if they sell to people who are non-white? Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, it just, it kind of like ignores that possibility, which is not just a possibility, is an actuality in much of the South and like Reconstruction era and afterwards, right? Is you kind of, even if you weren't personally harboring any resentment towards non-white peoples, then you kind of had to just play the game because the majority of people that um, you needed to serve or that you needed to work with were that way. And I think probably most people think something like this. Well, I'm not racist, right? But, you know, to get on in the, um, with the way things are in the world, I kind of need to show preference towards people of my race. Just kind of the way things are and what are you going to do about it? Like fight the system? Hmm. It's all these abstractions that have no real meaning, right? But it's probably how most people excuse stuff like uh, send her back and stuff like that, right? Right. You know, I think there's another layer to unfold into this too. Uh, I like that you kind of talked about that that kind of liberal tendency. It also seems to erect liberal capitalism up as salvific. It is the cure, potentially, right? Like, just so long as everybody and everything is subordinated to the universal axioms of commodification and profit maximization, then we can overcome racism, right? Like, that's the appeal that's being made in that liberal idea that's like, uh, well, we have to make sure that every customer is treated equally kind of shit. Or it will, it will be affected through like a, like a accidental uh, effect, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Which is extremely insidious and ideological. And I don't mean ideological in the sense of like a self-conscious awareness that this is your team, but I mean in the unconscious sense, that it's a much deeper kind of control mechanism, um, which I think is really, well, insidious to be repetitive. Um, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the MO of liberal capitalism is that it kind of wants to operate according to this salvific logic that everything is always potentially convertible into, you know, whatever the particular universal is that it's seeking to offer. And usually it's allied with some form of like either uh, liberal rights or uh, commodification or anything can be turned into an asset or assetization or whatever. So I think that's another that layer that's kind of folded into that, right? So then racism is supposedly just this, it's an aberration. It's not essential. Um, it doesn't actually fit within capitalism. It doesn't fit within liberalism. It's exogenous to the system. And we can eradicate those, those plagues if we're just more faithful to the universal truths that are neutral and pure, or actually maybe not even neutral, but that are actually good, Right. Um, I think the axioms of commodification are kind of neutral, but they're obviously value-laden when you kind of insert them into the like, cultural landscape. But I think that's that's the thing. That's like the, the theological element that's almost uh, incipient within liberal capitalism. Can you say more about that theological element? Yeah, I, I think that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a salvific logic. It's a logic of salvation. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a logic that you will be saved by your fidelity uh, to and therefore your liturgical allegiance towards uh, those axioms, which means commodify, sell, trade, uh, work, etc. And so that that's that's a sort of kind of liberal capitalist theological way of addressing racism, right? And that's totally anathema to 
the liberal order, right? The idea that those those um, uh, sort of roots would apply, the theological salvific roots would apply. It's supposed to be, yeah. those are supposed to be totally exogenous to the whole liberal political order. Yeah, to the quote-unquote secular, right? Yeah, exactly. Which I think yeah. is really, which I think is really kind of interesting to ponder. Yeah, I think that the the point that I think is really important about this is um, those roots apply to pretty much everything. Um, there isn't a neutral political order where sort of you can just follow these basic sets of principles and then all the uh, all the great effects of human flourishing and social organization are beneficial for everybody will just automatically apply, right? Um, That's it, yeah. And that means there has to be some level of, you know, a combination of sort of the bottom-up organization that liberalism is so fond of with top-down organization, trying to figure out why are people racist in a seemingly irrational way that doesn't really Mm -hmm. benefit them ultimately? And how can we develop education systems and media systems and uh, different environments to help ameliorate that? And where can that go wrong? Where can that end up in basically Stalinism, where the top-down itself becomes uh, stifling and obviously it's it's the, the biggest enemy towards uh, freedom and equality and um, all the good things that we want out of social, uh, social organization. So yeah, I mean, I think the sort of attractiveness of liberalism, especially for those today who are calling themselves classical liberals and stuff like that, is it's really attractive to think that you could sort of follow this basic set of rules in social organization and then get all the benefits that everyone wants. It's super mm. attractive, right? Because yeah. everything else has kind of failed. But I think what we're seeing now is, yeah, that's because you know human society is ultimately going to fail at some point. Um, and so it, it's not bad necessarily to look to combine things from top-down systems with the good things of the bottom-up liberal systems that we've had before and trying to find a you know complex social organization and structure politically that um, might be better suited to how humans develop, how our beliefs influence our actions, all the different things we learn from, you know, psychology and sociology. And that's mm. scary to think about, especially if you, you know, grew up in the U S and you get indoctrinated with this idea of, you know, uh, American liberalism is the only true kind of freedom. Um, but then it's probably less scary now than it was, you know, with the Soviet union is like the specter haunting over us as the alternative. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's another element to this that I that I'd love to kind of like to kind of unpack a little bit because it kind of taps into the uh the issue pertaining to the essentialization of somebody being racist, but it's about racism as a concept itself. So I I do think there's a sense in, w- in which we can abstract and say that racism is an abstract concept that has particular definitive characteristics. But simultaneously, at the same time, as soon as we start thinking at that level of abstraction, I think it's really important to also bring it back into the material and processual and recognize that race racism doesn't exist apart from enactments of racism, right? So racism doesn't exist as this entity in a world of ideas. And I think this is sometimes my gut reaction when I think of, when I hear people saying that person is a racist or that's racist, is 
a lot of times, I think we tend to speak of racism as though it is this universal, once-for-all, objective entity that exists apart from any sort of um, existential or subjective enactments of it. And I'm not sure that there is an essence of racism necessarily that is devoid of its enactments. But the problem is I don't want to simply reduce it to some kind of like systems theory where the only thing that racism is is it's only existent in its enactments because I simultaneously do think there is a sense in which abstractions become objects, become literal material objects. And when ideas then serve as mediating factors within relations, which then means that our relations are mediated by this conceptual apparatus of racism, uh, what Sartre would call a practico-inert. And it just basically means that it's uh, it's an object that has elements of both praxis or activity, but then also inertia. So it's static and it's also in a state of becoming. And it's sort of got this like dual uh, tense type of... Uh, characteristic about it. And so I do think that we can think both that uh, that racism is an enactment of a particular prejudice or bias towards people of a perceived outgroup, but then simultaneously we need to also recognize how does that enactment, uh, how is that enactment mediated by the concept of racism? And then simultaneously, how do the enactments that are mediated by that concept then reinforce or reinform, if you will, that concept as a sort of semi-autonomous entity in itself. And it seems to be very muddy and very sticky because I think there are layers here of enfolding that I'm talking about because it's kind of like the relations are mediated by the concept, but the concept is formed by the relations. Which one comes first, chicken and egg? Which one has priority? Which one is more dominant or, or more determinant? Those questions are very difficult to wrestle with, but I think it's really important, at least ontologically or paradigmatically to think from within that perspective or from within that frame. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think the the best argument for that maybe is a reductio towards the alternative. And the alternative to that being the only way you can sort of separate an essentialized racism from enactments and from the relation between those two things in this dialectical flow is thinking of like a brain in a vat that accepts the judgment that Mexicans are lazy. Like that's the only sense in which you could sort of divorce and essentialize racism from enactments of racism, right? In some sense, because even <laughs> beliefs right. are materially enacted and then have influence and uh, causal relations with other beliefs and other things, right? As we're talking about the materialism of ideas. So, um, and that's a reductio, right? Because mm. who gives a shit about a brain in a vat who thinks that, right. you know, some group is lazy like that. No one cares about that, right? It's like the, the classic, like, um, who's the the main character in the 70s sitcom All in the Family? I forget his name. Oh, is it Archie Famous. Bunker? Yeah, Archie Bunker, right? Like, Archie Bunker's racist, right? But who really gives a shit? He's an old man who has, old working class man who has no influence on anything in the world, right? And you also kind of know that he's not, like, really, really racist. And that's a whole different, like, psychological addendum to explore, right? But, like, no, who really cares about the total ineffectual racism, if such a thing were to exist? It, like I guess maybe it's not good that someone believes false things. I guess you can make that case like a, like a classically platonic case that just believing true things is good in and of itself, and so believing false things is bad in and of itself. Like who really gives a shit about that, right? Um, mm. We want to talk about how those beliefs uh, influence actions, and actions influence beliefs, and beliefs influence other beliefs, and the 
sort of causal nexus between all those things that produces mm. the effects of racism, which are the real things we don't like ultimately, right? We ultimately right. don't like the fact that some people are not treated fairly just because of things that have nothing to do with their own choices. Um, and that's the reason why racism is so pernicious, right? Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a kind of you know egalitarian tendency that we have, which is good, I think, ultimately. And I think we need to just always view racism not in the guise of the brain in the fat who has racist beliefs as if that were one true and then two if you could do anything about that if it were true and really see how it fits into a a grander scheme of ultimately unfairness in society Mm. well and i think this also opens us up to understanding the relationship that people love to throw these terms around but i mean to really understand how it is that the material interacts with the structural and how that's different from the systemic and how that's related to the ideal or the abstract or the conceptual. And so if we take that that dialectical model that we were just kind of talking about, how there are these abstractions that mediate our relations, those abstractions are material because they're only enacted, but then there's some kind of um, like reverse causation that in the enactment we also feed into these ideas. The ideas aren't just floating in the ether detached from anything either. They are material. They're connected to systems of language. They're connected to sometimes legal codings in certain places, like think South African apartheid, right? Um, so sometimes there's there's more explicit ways in which they are encoded legally. Um, and, then, uh, and then I think what that does is that helps us understand the materiality, if you will, of the structural which is also related to the materiality of the ideal, which is then, of course, related to the materiality of relations, which I think sometimes there's a lot of time, especially among certain leftists who are more politically economic oriented, there, there's a hesitancy to give materiality or to give much of a credence to the materiality of ideas, or at least there's a real lack of understanding of how it is that ideas are essentially material. And if you don't think this, then you're just an, a dualist. Right? Like, if you don't grant materiality to the status of ideas and relations, then you are a dualist. Right? If things are just simply abstract, this is sometimes where some of my criticisms of like Adolf Reed might come in. Is he talks a lot about the abstraction of racism, and I love Reed's work quite a bit, but I think he fundamentally, ontologically misunderstands how abstractions are actually material. Um, and just simply to abstract away from something is not to kind of like detach it or um, completely separate, if you will, from the material, as though there is actually a legitimate. Uh, duality that is uh, that is occurring there. So to properly think more dialectically is we need to think about, okay, in what ways is abstraction informing the material and is it informed by the material? And that's when we need to talk about the structural. And the structural is different for me from the systemic. The systemic is what I was talking about with the structural being encoded into legal frameworks, right? Or being encoded into practices within like a juridical system or a politico-juridical system. But structural for me is something that exists Um, not necessarily instantiated in those things. It's a sort of transcendental precondition to any instantiations, right? And so the structural for me is always existent at that kind of transcendental or presuppositional uh, domain, which means then that there are gradations of racism in their instantiations, which means that some people are habitually oriented in their enactments of that structural tendency in that dialectical process, where they're kind of taking the structural and allowing that to mediate that or not allowing that, enacting that in their mediated social relations that inform their social relations that then feed back into the structural that then strengthen or intensify their habituated characteristics, which then we apply the term 
racist onto that person, right? That's how it happens. But then simultaneously, it also allows somebody like me to exhibit uh, situations of implicit bias. It allows hiring processes to exhibit both more nefarious and then also more subtle forms of racism. So there are these gradations of expression or instantiation of that larger structural, logical, and dialectical process. And I think if we don't think of things in this way, then we end up, one, misunderstanding how it is that there is this scale, this gradation uh, of racisms that are manifest in particular ways. But then simultaneously, I think it also leads us to a form of mystification where we kind of create a dualism where we only think about uh, the ideas of racism versus like the material expressions of racism. And I think we need to eschew both of those tendencies for this kind of more muddied, variegated, um, uh, like domains of variation and in intensity to use Deleuzean terms. Does that make sense? Can you talk a little bit more about the difference between systemic and structural? Or maybe like give an example um, of how they differentiate. I'm not sure I'm following that. Well, I guess maybe to... I mean this analogously, and I'm not sure how far I would want to take this, but I think the structural is primarily linguistic and unconscious, and the systemic is codified uh, and uh, uh, like maybe essentially juridico-political, right? So systemic is, I mean, it can mean a couple of things. We could say something is systemic in the sense that it's kind of like, oh, it's habitual, Right? I think a lot of times people use that, like, oh, it's a systemic process. It's something that is perpetuated through these systems in that it's being passed down, which is really, I think, just a way of saying that our social ensembles or that our social systems are habituated towards a particular orientation, right? It's just we the opposite that, of individual, right? Right, exactly. Systemic means not individual. I think so, yeah. The relations between individuals give rise to a systemic effect that the individual yeah. on its own would not be able to. I think I tend to think of systemic as being more an expression of the structural, that the structural pertains to maybe what Deleuze would refer to as that virtual field or in Freudian and Lacanian terms, the unconscious, or maybe we could say in linguistic terms, the linguistic, um, kind of the maybe the cultural in some people's terms. And I don't mean that in the, the bad sense, like the critique of, uh, of like the cultural turn or whatever, but um, that thing that exists uh, – that, that, that thing that exists, if you will, it's still material, but that thing that exists as the transcendental conditions that um, are potentially expressed, but that are only manifest in particular ways. They're manifest through individual bodies, and then they're also manifest through, like you just said, the non-individual um, systemic networks that are codified through juridico-political processes, like South African apartheid or... Uh, Nazi Germany's, uh, uh, I can't remember what their laws were called, um, but where they kind of like drew on some of the ways that uh, that African Americans or that African slaves were dealt with in America, um, and they kind of in instituted their their codes and their 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 frameworks towards um, uh, their own systems of oppression. Right? Does that make sense? So that so, would be systemic versus the yeah, structural. So, so would it be that systemic refers to when a group of individuals? have certain relations, then this specific kind of effect can be produced and individuals on their own couldn't yes. do that. Whereas structural could refer to either individuals or systems yes. um, having some effects as long as it's produced by an underlying like what like like linguistic and cognitive something or other causes that produce something that's not necessarily what's the opposite of structural chosen. 
or intended? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to just reduce it to either linguistic or cognitive, though, because then that makes it almost seem a little bit too... Um, well, the, the cognitive perspective, almost like... I mean, I guess there is something biological to it. And I, it would be interesting to think about a biological basis, but I don't want to just simply like reduce it to biological. I know you're not saying that, but for people listening, I'm not... When we think of cognitive, a lot of times people tend to think of cognitive science. And I don't think that we're talking about like cognition, right? Yeah, thought. Yeah, thought, thought just in general. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I, I do think that there is a distinction. And I think it's a little bit sloppy when people constantly just throw the terms around sequentially, uh, like at the same time, because they're like, oh, it's systemic racism and it's or, or it's structural racism or not sequentially, but when they just use them interchangeably, because I think that we really need to have a robust understanding of what structural is and i think that this is precisely where i get kind of post-kantian and pseudo Deleuzian here but that's why i think we need to think about the transcendental conditions um, of actual experience not of possible experience but the actual material conditions that sort of precondition ourselves and this is also where i think in my framework at least where the normative element would come in Right, the normative for me precisely exists at that level of the virtual or at the transcendental. Yeah, so you wouldn't just say, "Oh, it's really interesting to take this Deleuzian <laughs> framework and, and think about how racism exists in a certain way that can be framed this way." And then I'm going to go and like you know uh, pay a bunch of money for diamonds and uh, that are you know mined by slaves in Africa or whatever. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, you give a shit, dude. Don't pretend not to give a shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's good, dude. I, I hadn't. I definitely use uh, systemic and structural synonymously. So it's interesting to have to think a little bit more about um, the usages of those terms and uh, if they can be different, differentiated in in something like the way you're talking about. I'm, I'm going to think more about that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think about the the kind of like gradation issue that you know there are some people who are kind of habituated in their character traits towards being racist and then there are people like you know myself who maybe late at night has a moment of trepidation when i see a group of black dudes walking down the street right that's the famous example do you cross the street when you see a black guy sort of thing even if i have a moment of thought i can't remember i think it was a comedian um i don't remember who it was but it was kind of like hey man it's okay like it's okay you're good oh god i think it was louis ck sorry if he's been canceled people but um i think it was louis ck who actually says this he's like the fact that i even have to tell myself that it's okay that there's a black person here means that i'm already being racist right <laughs> like like it's okay you don't have to worry about a black guy like why did that thought even enter your mind if it was an old white woman that thought wouldn't have even entered your mind at all but there's like a like a a nascent threat that you're responding to and then you're trying to encourage yourself by being a good liberal in a way. Yeah, it sort of gives the lie or shows the lie to the the idea that all of our beliefs are just these explicit, considered judgments um, that we've come to, right? And that our actions flow directly from those explicit judgments that we've decided on. Um, no, yeah. I mean, most of our actions are reflexive and based upon unconscious beliefs that have been formed based upon our environment and um, all these implicit things. It's like I, you're talking about the crossing the street. I know my example that I always catch myself doing is in certain areas of the city, I will check my wallet in my back pocket more often. Mm. Not because anyone's bumped into me or I have any actual reason, good reason to think that, oh, I got to check and see to make sure that my wallet's back there. Like if you're at a concert or something, that makes perfect sense. But 
No, just because of the area that I'm in. I don't even notice myself doing it until I'm doing it. And then I get all white guilt about it, right? Uh, <laughs> and, that, and, the, and the response to that is not to say, oh, I'm so stupid for being irrational with white guilt, right? White guilt's the enemy, right? No, the point is just to say, no, I, I have this system uh, or maybe this structure whereby my actions flow from these implicit unconscious beliefs. And if I have that, and I'm like, hopefully in the above average level of like considering my own opinions and trying to form my beliefs based upon reason and evidence, then what does that mean for everybody else? Like, I mean, this is just a human condition is to be this way. And that means mm. we probably have to be even more vigilant about making sure that our systems and structures at the social level um, are not just feeding off of um, all those implicit uh, forms of um, bias that just exist mm. in us. Because if we just ignore it, and pretend that it's not a big deal, then you're going to have all these outcomes that um, are totally unfair and that you don't actually want, and even a and even in like a, a liberal uh, format. How do you think of the relationship between that tendency, which we would still say is a manifestation of a racist structure, right? But we wouldn't then be like, "Oh, Troy, you are racist." You might say that I have tendencies of towards racism. Um, prejudice, right? Which for people out there, prejudice means prejudgment, right? Uh, in the in the kind of etymological sense of the term. So it's like a prior judgment on a person or place or thing or whatever. Um, obviously, we're talking about in relation to, to ethnicities here. But um, what do you think is the relationship between that, that, that tendency to check your wallet more frequently? And then when somebody says that Trump is racist or somebody who is like a card-carrying KKK member, like do they relate... Uh, are they qualitatively different or is it a difference of degree? Or is it both? Is there a sense at which differences of degree and gradations kind of are so enfolded into one another in this dialectical process that they are kind of qualitatively different along the scale? Yeah, the difference between you and me and the explicit you know, KKK member is the explicit beliefs, right? When you expose that implicit bias to explicit sort of deliberation, you say that it's wrong, right? You disabuse yourself of it. And then if you really actually care about it and understand why you did those things in the first place, you will attempt to put yourself into environments and build habits towards not acting racistly. And I have no problem calling those actions racist, right? That's you're acting racistly when you cross the street for no good reason or when you check your wallet for no good reason, right? Um, but then you can also respond to that in a good or bad way, right? And the bad way, or one of the bad ways, is just to say, oh, that's just irrational guilt, whatever, right? Not a big deal. Mm. The good way is to say, no, that actually, this is a, you know, a mostly innocuous situation, but this same, formally speaking, this same um, sort of connection between implicit belief and action exists at everything from the individual level to like, you know, the juridical level, to judges, to police officers, um, to loan applications, to landlords, anything, right? Um, and that means we all have that kind of implicit bias. And so we have to be pretty vigilant about making sure that when it's exposed, we recognize it and then try and disabuse ourselves of it. Um, and that's hard to do, right? Because that means like, and studies show that uh, it's not simply the case that individuals, you know how they, there's like that classic recognition that people on the coasts tend to be more accepting of uh, multiracial Communities and people mm -hmm. that are more inland, 
tend to be more about homogenous communities. And there's this kind of assumption, I think, amongst most people, both left and right, that, well, that's just, you know, self-selection. People are just, that, that like multiculturalism and multiracial uh, communities move towards the coasts and stay there and people and everyone else kind of hovers towards the middle. And that's not entirely true. It's not just self-selection. Mm. People are actually influenced by their environment too, such right. that an individual who moves from the coast to somewhere very rural and very racially homogenous will start to have more implicit beliefs and actions that are racist and vice versa. Right. Mm. Um, and so that's an important thing to sort of take a hold of and ready yourself towards. So you can be vigilant in making sure that you balance out those influences. You know, you involve yourself in more multicultural activities around people so that you don't end up developing those bad habits. It's tough when you realize that ethics isn't just about figuring out what's right and then doing it. <laughs> you know, it also means like figuring out the best environment for yourself to be in, building the best habits, not putting yourself in situations where you know that you're not going to be able um, to actually do the right thing. I mean, that's the classic situationist critique, right? But uh, way more complicated mm. than just knowing what's right and doing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any, I mean, I, we could probably keep talking about this forever. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up? I don't think so, because I think we talked about six more things than I planned on in the first place. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, I know you're not a huge musical theater guy, but there was a show called Avenue Q. Are you familiar with this show? Oh, yeah. yeah I've heard a lot about it. My girlfriend there, loves or loved that, I think. Yeah, I, w I was wondering. Yeah. So there's a song in there. You can ask her about this. It's called Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard about this. <laughs> do you know? Yeah, it's everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. I can't remember what the melody is, but it's uh, that's the lyric. It's everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. And it's, I can't remember what it is, but a character makes a stereotype about one of the Asian characters, I think, is how it gets set off. And then someone's like, oh my God, did you just stereotype? And they're kind of like, oh, shoot, I'm sorry. But then someone else comes in and it's kind of like, hey, come on, we all make little racist state mistakes and then at the end it turns into them like actually celebrating and all t sharing racist jokes together because they're like oh that is kind of funny and then they're like well wait a second is that funny or what and but it's kind of this interesting and i can't remember how it gets resolved but it's this interesting interplay between like we said something we shouldn't have said i gotta police myself but then someone else comes along and is like ah fuck it we all kind of do it and actually we can kind of have fun and let's just tell racist jokes like jokes about polish people jokes about chinese people jokes about black people jokes about irish people you know whatever whatever ethnicity um and they kind of just throw everybody into the fire, uh, kind of in a sort of South Parky kind of way, maybe. Um, but it is it is interesting. I kind of wonder. I wonder. When I was younger, I loved that. I was like, yeah, that's right. But I think there's something really kind of, you know. And I don't just mean liberal in the sense as a disqualifier, but there is something particularly liberal about uh, and almost allowing us to alleviate our own anxieties by just saying hey it's okay we're not bad right we all have these racist tendencies which speaks more to this which speaks more to this white guilt issue that we struggle with i think we don't really know how to deal with those those uncouth elements of ourselves or of our neighbor or our family members when they do crop up even if we don't think that person is an evil kkk member we're like oh shit that person is racist against whatever you know this insert insert uh, racial stereotype here, and so I think that there is something. It, it, 
more as like a an interesting expression of a symptom. I thought that that now I think that that song is is kind of interesting because it does seem to um, kind of illuminate, if you will, some of these discomforts that we have with our own failures or perceived failures. You know, and then how do we deal with them? How do we address them? Is is another issue, and I don't re- remember how the show resolves it. I kind of, for some reason, in my mind, I feel like they kind of just at the end are kind of like, yeah, fuck it, we can tell racist jokes, and we don't really mean it, and it's not good. I, I kind of think that. Correct me if I'm wrong for people who are, l- are listening that are out there that have the show more fresh in their mind, but something along those lines. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like a, you know, the problem with white guilt isn't that the object of the guilt is illusory. It's not. It's real. The problem is that the way white guilt is structured socially, it kind of doesn't provide a resolution to the actual problem. It just tells you feel bad about it. And then you've kind of done your duty, right? By feeling bad about it. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, when when you're, when you feel guilt, that means you don't have to like solve the problem. Like you need to, you didn't need to have have rapprochement. You need like uh, um, some sort of like, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Not retributive justice but uh restorative justice like restorative, restore yeah. the relationship right um but white guilt doesn't really it's structured in such a way as to foreclose any sort of social um change it's just about well what do i do as an individual and well you're kind of stuck so that just means that i guess we're okay we can keep making the jokes the jokes aren't the problem right hmm. um it's the idea that oh it's it's about whether or not i can do this individual action or not and it's not it's sort of foreclosing the um, social sphere where the problem largely exists. I mean, I think this also hits on another point that's really difficult with dealing with um, white guilt and with expressions of racism along that spectrum. Uh, let's say even even at the more subtle uh, end of the spectrum, because how do you deal with it at a social level if it's not punitive, right? It's all well and good to appeal to these higher expressions or what I would consider these higher expressions of justice outside of retributive or punitive justice. But I know a lot of people would feel like that's just unfair. That, oh, okay, so, yeah, restore people and um, let's just kind of, you know, help people along. And this kind of like, it's perceived as like maybe like a weak therapy that excuses, uh, that doesn't actually adequately deal with or quote unquote punish, if you will, the expression of the thing that needs to be dealt with appropriately. And I think it's really difficult, especially in our day and age right now, which it seems to be so rampant with a sort of logic of punitivity and, and retributive justice. I think it's really difficult also for us to deal with that that white guilt and those expressions of racism that we see either in a comedian or a TV show or in a politician or in a family member or in somebody that's in our, our community group or whatever. Um, it's really difficult to deal with those things in a way that that isn't punitive or that isn't retributive. You know, like this is one of the things I'm a part of a, a climate justice collective here that's got larger social justice concerns that we're working through. And um, one of the things that as we're kind of working through how to how to organize ourselves and self manage and stuff like that that we've talked about is precisely this. Like, how do you? It's kind of the issue of ecclesiology and theology, right? Um, how do you deal with internal division or strife or tensions or uh, unethical activities and do you just warn somebody once and then you know in private and then take community of people to warn them again and if they don't repent then you kick them out of the church the sort of famous biblical uh, motif or is it like one strike and you're out 
Like, how do we actually address these things outside of a logic of punitivity, um, while at the same time trying to, I don't know, aim towards a preservation of kind of a, a purity? Or should we just get rid of the notion of that preservation of purity altogether and just be like, hey, fuck it, people, we make mistakes and we fuck up, and how many times do you forgive someone? Should I do seven times, Lord? No, I say seven times 70, or whatever it was that he says, you know? Yeah, big problem um, with Jesus there is, I don't think he ever saw Twitter. Because you have to forgive <laughs> way more than 70 times 7 if you've seen Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know what I mean? Like, I think that that there is, um, one, there's, you know, millennia of, of habitual tendencies towards, like, eye for an eye type of, type of responses. And then I think simultaneously in the age of the internet, punitivity is just fucking everywhere. And that leads to, like, a desire for retribution. But... How how should we think about dealing with racism, both in the smaller senses of, you know, us guarding our wallet or checking ourselves when we're out? How should we deal with that in a way that's non-punitive? And then should we extend that same measure of, um, I was going to say grace, but that's kind of front-loading it. But do we extend that same kind of logical disposition to racist expressions that are kind of more intensified or more explicit? Yeah, and then that gets, we can probably end there because that gets to an important division, I think, between um, talking about racism and talking about kind of justice. And uh, I've been wanting to have a conversation with you about uh, reparations specifically, and we can talk about the larger um, <clears throat> idea of, of social justice at a future date. Um, but I'm looking forward to that because I think those are really interesting uh, ideas and especially these, this division between our sort of almost natural desire for, for punitivity against clearly a more mm. effective social organization which involves restorative uh, justice or something along those lines. Yeah, that's all super interesting stuff that we can talk about at a future date, yeah? Yeah, so insert ellipsis here, part two soon to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so now, after the main segment, we have to get to the sticky leaves part of the show. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin, what's doing it for you this week? All right, so I had my sticky leaves. I told you about what it was going to be, or I told you what it was going to be about prior to recording. You thought it was going to be about something else. So I figured let's just have a quick dual sticky leaves, okay? We'll oh, you're start, so kind. We'll start with... The Top Gun trailer. Now, you thought this was going to be my sticky leaves. Is this just because you know that Top Gun was my favorite film as a kid growing up? That's exactly why. Yeah, and uh, but here's the thing. You know, sometimes you got to just let your childhood stay your childhood. And this is why, like, the remakes, they don't get me, or a sequel made 30 years later doesn't always get me so excited. So I hadn't been super excited about Top Gun Maverick uh, the sequel for the past like year or whatever it was that uh, that I knew that it was in production, and then the trailer came out, and I watched the trailer, <laughs> and everything changed. Nostalgia buttons were pushed. Yeah, I almost the, tweeted the out. Got the dopamine rush. That's it, man. I almost tweeted out like me. You know how people are like me, and I say this, but then also me or whatever. I was gonna say me like uh, 
like Marvel films are just derivative uh, fanboy fiction for nerds that want to find Easter eggs. And then also me, <laughs> ooh, they played that song. And ooh, he's riding on the motorcycle chasing the jet like he did in the original. And ooh, there's this this one shot that is being imitated here that was in the original. Like I was totally fanboying out looking at the Easter eggs. And that's really what the trailer was, right? It was just a bunch of nostalgia introducing you a little bit to Maverick and kind of where he is 30 years later from the original. But mostly it was, uh, we're going to take some of the soundtrack, we're going to take some of the shots, and we're going to kind of lace these things together, and we're going to try to just touch all of those sentimental buttons. And it did. It touched those buttons for me. So I will probably spend my money on some more imperialist propaganda. (laughs) you got to have a little bit, man. I know. Something to feel guilty about. I think, I don't remember what the statistics were, like, in terms of hard numbers, but I know that when the original Top Gun came out, the enrollment into the military, particularly the Navy, spiked measurably. Oh, my so, God. So, yeah. And then you you know that uh, Tony Scott, the director of the original, had to work in uh, in pretty tight coordination with the United States government because they were actually, I mean, they didn't. this is the age before CGI, right? So they were actually renting aircraft carriers and renting... Uh, Jets and Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, Anthony Edwards, Tim Robbins, they're actually in these fighter jets where they do a lot of the filming. So they're actually in the fighter jets flying around. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, they're not obviously flying, they're being piloted by actual Navy, naval aviators, but they uh, are actually using these equipments, which means that there's a sense in which the United States government was actually entirely supportive in backing this project because they knew they knew that it would have some sort of ideological and propagandistic effect over people because it makes the navy out to be and the military out to be this this kind of force of good that is patrolling the indian ocean which is where the the kind of big uh the battle takes place i believe in the original so yeah so i know it's total imperialist propaganda but i'm going to i'm going to enjoy your symptom got yeah, a little bit there. of that in your life yeah, I know. I'll be there. But I'm kind of also, I'm a little bit hesitant because the film had such import to me as a child growing up that I don't want to in any way sour that. And I know that people are like, oh, no, you can enjoy the sequels and you can enjoy the remakes as uh, as autonomous entities. Yes, theoretically, you can. But when you are so attached to a property, you know, I, I can't help but I'm going to go in with just so many expectations, whether they be like pessimistic or more optimistic i'm still going to go into that theater just loaded with stuff and so it's going to be a very weird viewing experience so i don't know um but the sticky leaves that i really wanted to talk about was that the trailer has been released for our film finally yeah so for people who uh, are a little bit newer to the podcast or that just didn't know i've been producing a film for the last couple of years based on the best-selling political uh, manifesto, I guess I could call it. It's kind of a strategic manifesto called Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism, and a World Without Work by Nick Cernick and Alex Williams. And it was, you know, we did an episode a few, maybe a couple months back with Brett from RevLeft Radio on the Accelerationist Manifesto, and Nick and Alex, the authors of Inventing the Future, were also the authors of the Accelerationist Manifesto. And uh, I read the book in, uh, it was probably early 2016. I remember where I was when I finished it, or actually when I sent the first email to Nick 
and Alex. And I basically, I, I was just thinking that this needed to be adapted into a film. And so uh, we kind of went through all the the procedures of uh, allowing me to option the script from Verso Books, who owned the publishing rights, and at the time the the, the film documentary rights. And then I went out and I uh, got uh, a young avant-garde experimental filmmaker named Isaiah Medina to come on board and direct the film. And his first film was called 8888 or 8888, and it premiered at Locarno Film Festival and played at uh, Toronto and then New York Film Fest and then a bunch of other festivals as well. And then it had a, a little stint online at Mubi. Shout out to one of our sponsors, uh, by the way. Um, and I just knew that he kind of had the artistic vision to do what Nick and Alex were hoping to do. They wanted to do something that wasn't just a talking heads type of documentary, but that actually enacted some of the futuristic principles and the artistic principles and the aesthetic principles that they themselves are interested towards beyond the book, but also I think that sort of kind of hover around or loom around the content of the book as well. The book is a lot about the power of automation and um, the imagination. And so uh, I knew that Isaiah would be somebody that could really faithfully give a rendition of what they would want in an adaptation of their book. So we did a crowdfunding campaign, and then that was a couple of years ago, and then we were able to source a little bit more funding from the Canadian, a couple of Canadian arts councils. Uh, Nick is Canadian, and then the director, Isaiah, is Canadian, he lives in Toronto. And so we were able to source some funding, and it allowed us to get access to uh, some better equipment and uh, some crew and some other technological tricks and some locations and things like that. So the film isn't ready yet. It'll be ready, we're thinking, in October at which time we'll submit it to some festivals. We've already got some festival interest. We think we know where it's going to premiere, but I won't say anything at the moment because I don't want to jinx it. Oh, cool. But it'll definitely have a festival run in 2020, and then um, and then it'll also play at like a bunch of like art museums and hopefully some community organization events and uh, at some various private screenings, and then it'll hopefully have a – at some point it'll have a theatrical and an online release. But the trailer is out. The trailer is out, which is fantastic because I've been seeing test footage for the last couple of years, which is great. But when you get like a condensed semi-final piece, you can start to then believe that it's materializing, you know? And I actually couldn't sleep last night because I was so jazzed about it. So I've watched the trailer like 50 <laughs> times. <laughs> so it's like two minutes and 30 seconds long. And so I don't know how whatever my math is on that. Um, I have I have uh, consumed that much of my time over the last day just watching the trailer. But for people that are interested in political manifestos, that are interested in um, art films, that are interested in montage cinema, uh, or just that are interested in sort of experimental and unique expressions of the cinematic form, I would say uh, you might be interested to check this out. The trailer's on YouTube, so you can just type in trailer for inventing the future or inventing the future trailer we also have a website that's inventfuturedoc.com and the trailer is on there in the media section you can check that out you can hit us up on twitter it's inventfuturedoc at inventfuturedoc uh, and then the trailer is up there as well so but check it out um i the film is going to be interesting man i'm i'm excited i i'm curious to see the uh, the finished product now you know isaiah is going to be locking himself away in an editing hole for the next couple months months to finish this up after doing just one more final bit of shooting we have one more final um slate of production shots to to accomplish in london uh, next month 
But after that, it's just the home stretch. So I'm kind of stoked, man. Kind of lit my soul ablaze, as I like to say. Yeah, dude. I can't wait for it. Uh, I feel like we've been talking about this for forever. Three years. Yeah, dude. It feels like longer than that. <laughs> I'm sure it feels like doubly longer than that for you. Um, it does. But yeah, I'm, I'm super jazzed about it. Excited. I can't wait for it to uh, garner all the acclaim and awards. It looks super cool, <laughs> as uh, 8888 did. And yeah. Um, yeah. It'd be fun to talk about it as a finished product on the podcast and however long in the future. Yeah, and we should probably, I mean, I'd love to, you know, wherever people are at in the world, you know, organize events. That's one of the other things we really want to do. So it doesn't matter if you're in California, if you're in Tennessee, if you're in New York, if you're in London, if you're in fucking Budapest, if you're in Durban, South Africa, if you're in Santiago, Chile, wherever you are, we want to line up events with like community groups, political organizations, reading groups, classrooms, um, institutions, think tanks. And we want to, you know, maybe we'll try to arrange some Q&As, like maybe some Skype Q&As. And of course, if we can be in person, and that means any member of the team, if we can be in person, that would that would be a, a bonus. But, um, but at the very least, we would love to kind of coordinate, if you will, the a series of events. So it'd be really fun to kind of get some stuff going on uh with you involved in that too and i don't know figure out something to do with talking about it when the final thing is released the crazy thing is that when you're making a film like this you go through these like highs and lows where it feels that like it's like that famous lenin quote right what is it where there are uh what is it there there are decades when nothing happens and then there are days when decades happen or whatever the fucking quote is something along those lines and that's how it feels like with this it's like there are months where it feels like nothing is happening. And then there are days where it feels like everything is happening. And that was kind of yesterday uh, when the trailer got released, or the day before, actually, when the trailer got released. And uh, that's kind of how it's felt for me. Because now it's just shitloads of emails to people, sending the trailer out to people, responding to people that I've been promising would get access to the trailer for six, eight months now, all kinds of things like that. And so all this stuff happens, and now it actually feels like it's alive and it's happening, which is always exciting. So just a shout-out to also being engaged in badass art projects as well, especially ones that are meaningful to you that have, I don't know, that that can, uh, that can sort of like make connections with all of the things that resonate within your soul. And for me, this is kind of it. Politics, imagination, political economy, art, film... Uh, ethics, all of that is kind of wrapped up in this project. So, And just to tie it all together, you're doing it not just because it's interesting, but because you give a shit about it. Because I give a shit about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a good with a capital G, motherfucker. <laughs> all caps, yo. All caps. All caps. Well, cool, man. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Just a reminder to everyone out there that um, our 100th episode is coming up soon. So if you want to shoot us an email or a tweet or a comment or whatever, as long as you can get a hold of us and ask a silly, ridiculous, interesting, fun sort of question that we can opine on for a little bit, uh, we'll choose the best ones and answer them on our 100th episode. Yeah, and you can hit us up uh, on Twitter at owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Insta if you want. You can shoot us a message that way. Or you can comment on whatever photo we have up. I'm not really active on the Instagram so much, but fuck it. 
you know, we can still answer messages if you want. However you want to reach out to us, reach out to us, and uh, you can ask us your question that way. Or if you just want to shout out and say what up, yo, or follow us when we've got information to release and shit like that. Yeah, rub for anything. Sweet. Well, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, man? Just one more thing I can think of. Oh, what's up? That's the Donnie, I'm Mary Constance.